our time ended uh, just before coffee on a bit of a, a cliffhanger, didn't it? Uh, Jonah, God's reluctant, God's rebellious prophet, the man who ran from God, who dared to run from God, thrown into the raging seas. And as Jonah sank like a stone to a certain watery grave, verse 17, the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And from inside his one-man lifeboat, Jonah can say, chapter 2 and verse 6, you, talking to the Lord, you brought my life up from the pits, O Lord my God. You see, Jonah knew that God had sent the storm. Jonah also knew that God had sent the fish. Well, maybe you find the idea of a fish swallowing Jonah a pretty hard thing to swallow for yourself. Well, it's not my job to, uh, to provide an apologetic or defence of this story as a historical account. I just want to say Jesus seemed to have no problem whatsoever accepting it as history. Uh, the direct comparison he makes of his own time in the grave compared to Jonah's time in the belly of the fish suggests to me if it's, if it's okay for Jesus, it's, it's okay for me and for you as well. But I will say there have been incidents in history which suggests that that something akin to this has happened uh, perhaps uh, before or since. One story from relative recent history is of a man named James Barclay, who died in 1909. And he claimed to have been swallowed by a sperm whale during a whaling expedition off the Falkland Islands. And Barclay's boat was attacked by the whale, and he landed, having fallen overboard, into the whale's mouth. And apparently, uh, Barclay survived the ordeal and was carved out of the stomach of the whale after it was captured and hauled aboard the ship by his peers. They had no idea that he was inside it. They were just whalers. They thought, man overboard, we've lost Barclay. They find this uh, whale, they they kill it, bring it on board and find Barclay inside. He'd been in there around 15 hours. Apparently, you can visit his grave in Gloucester. And the inscription on his gravestone, having died obviously a number of years later, simply reads, James Barclay, a modern day Jonah. Now, whether it's true uh, or not is debated, whether he really experienced what he claims to have experienced, uh, and whether the story happened, who knows. But can I tell you, the real story for us today, this morning, uh, is not fish swallows a man. If there's a miracle to be witnessed, Here, at the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, it's not in the belly of the fish, but in the heart of the prophets. That's the miracle. But what I want us to see this morning is that God's grace is is not only designed to save pagan sailors, chapter 1, but God's grace is able to restore wayward prophets of God. And chapter 2 is the testimony to this gospel transformation, this renewal in the heart and life of Jonah that will, in the end, chapter 3, equip and send him into and onto his mission. See, I hope you know, Christian, uh, and this is where Tullian's book is so helpful again, I hope you know, Christian, that the Christian life doesn't come from keeping a set of rules, nor can you really be motivated to, to live for Christ out of a a fear of not doing God's will and going his way. 
a fear of what will happen to me if I don't obey God. No, the Christian life, it, it really the only power that can sustain you through a lifetime is that deeper knowledge still that we are loved by God. A friend of mine, uh, in fact, going away on a university Christian weekend house party, hired the university minibus. And uh, she hired the minibus and set off and realised that she needed to fill up partway on her journey. So filled up the minibus, set off again to head on the rest of the journey. 20 minutes later, the minibus ground to a halt. Why? Wrong fuel in the engine. You see, she put petrol in a diesel engine. And that's what happens. But of course, it, it didn't happen immediately, did it? The engine didn't stop the moment she turned the keys and set off again, having filled up at the petrol station. It, it broke down just a few miles down the road when the effect of that wrong fuel began to work its way into the engine and, and to destroy and to wreck the, the minibus. And I guess as Christians, it's possible for us to find ourselves putting wrong fuel in the engine and not to realise just how damaging that is for us in the longer term. The only thing that can sustain you in a lifetime of, of, of Christian living and service and ministry is that deeper knowledge of God's grace. That's the, that's the fuel that has to go into the engine. And when we read in the New Testament the examples and the words of the Apostle Paul, we find him constantly appealing to the grace of God as that which has kept him and that which has enabled him to serve. The grace that, uh, the grace that saves is the grace that, that enables us to go and to send on mission. So Paul can say in Galatians 2 and verse 20, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What is it that gets him out of bed in the morning? What is it, how is he able to live the life that he lives? I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Victor Hugo said, um, said the greatest conviction is the knowledge that we are loved. And that is true for the Christian, isn't it? Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. And when the love of God is a living reality in our hearts and in our lives, the grace that saves is also able to transform our Christian lives. And that's what we see in this second session this morning. Jonah, our runaway, rebellious worshipper, is ready again to serve God only when he discovers all over again that God is a God of undeserved mercy to him. See chapter 2 verse 9, I, what's the conclusion of, of, of this rescue? I, with a song of thanksgiving, it's the heartbeat of grace, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Why? Salvation comes from the Lord. And there's a man who is that close to death who knows the only reason he's alive is the grace of God. And he says, that's enough for me to sustain me, to, to be on mission, to do everything that he's called me to do. What he learns through his deep water experience 
is God does not treat us as our sins deserve. And you and I need to daily remember that fact. God is not treating us as our sins deserve. And he comes to our rescue time and again and again. Thrown into the sea, sinking like a stone, Jonah expects to die. Jonah deserved to die. And yet Jonah found God to be gracious again merciful to him in the face of his sin. You see, the the grace that is powerful to save us is a grace that's able to transform us. So let's have a look at verses uh, 1 to 3 and this need of grace. There on your handouts, if you're the kind of person who finds taking a few notes just helps you to focus, verses 1 to 3. Verse 1, from inside the fish, Jonah did something he hadn't done for quite a long time. What did Jonah do? He talked to God. Rather than running away from God, 180 degrees in the wrong direction, Jonah finally says, I I, I probably need to talk to God about my issues. And he prays. He didn't pray when God called him to Nineveh. Nineveh and Savannah, chapter 1, verse 3. He didn't pray when the sailors prayed because the storm had come upon them. No, he was asleep. He didn't pray, as far as we can tell, even as he was thrown into the sea. But when all else had failed, chapter 2 and verse 2, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, that's what it took. You see, it was a severe mercy. It was a surprising grace, because it was only from the depths of the grave that he actually thought, God is my only hope. It took God to do that. I called for help, and you listened to my cry. I guess it's just true, isn't it? Prayer can be a last resort, can't it, at times? That we go to God when every other option has been exhausted and every other opportunity shut down? No, verse 7, when my life was ebbing away. I, I remembered you, Lord. When my life was all but gone. 60 seconds from death. Just the the dying breath of a desperate man finally prayed. Like a thief on a cross. Nailed to die. He has enough breath to say, remember me when you come into my kingdom. And the grace of God is that big that Jesus says today. You, an ungodly, unrighteous man, will be with me in paradise. Jonah found God in his hour of death. And that says something about our hearts, doesn't it, really? Well, may I just ask you to note, if you're a note-taker, write these questions. What does it take to get you to pray? And what might it take for Morden Road to be a more prayerful church? What might it take? I ask those questions of you as I ask them of myself and of our church at City Church in Birmingham. God in his grace brought Jonah low that he might teach him humble dependence. And as I said uh, towards the end of that last session, just think for a moment if God had not sent a storm, would Jonah have ever prayed again? 
don't know. And if God had not sent a fish, would Jonah have ever praised again? You see, worship is a gracious gift from a gracious God and it flows out of a grace-filled heart. To want to praise God and to worship God is itself an act of God's extraordinary grace to you. To turn your heart towards him so that you want to sing his praise. That itself is an amazing sign of God's grace. And Jonah is now a, a man ready to praise God. So how might God bring you or I to a point where we reach an end of ourselves to teach us humble dependence so that we might say, Lord, you and you alone can, can help me in this situation. Sinclair Ferguson says, we must allow God to be the judge of what is necessary to restore us to his presence. We know most of us the story of Joni, who was paralysed from the neck down in, after a swim pool accident. And we ask the question, where is God when someone experiences such a horrific injury so that they're unable to, to, to move their limbs? Where is God? And this is Joni's conclusion to that question. When God brings suffering into your life as a Christian, be it mild or drastic, he is forcing you to decide on issues you've been avoiding. He is pressing you to ask yourself some questions. Am I going to continue trying to live in two worlds? Obeying Christ and my own sinful desires, or am I going to refuse to worry? Am I going to be grateful in trials? Am I going to abandon my sins? In short, am I going to be like Christ? He provides the suffering, but the choice is yours. Joni continues, Today, as I look back, I'm convinced, these extraordinary words, I'm convinced that the whole ordeal of my paralysis was inspired by his love. Let me just read that again. I don't think you'll hear a more striking statement today. I am convinced that the whole ordeal of my paralysis was inspired by his love. I wasn't a rat in a maze. I wasn't the brute, sorry, the brunt of some cruel divine joke. God had reasons behind my suffering and learning some of them has made all the difference in the world. Are you ready to say, along with Joni, I'm willing to suffer if that's the way you'll keep me close to you. Jonah in the belly of the fish, you see, could see at last, verse 3, you hurled me into the deep. All your, do you see, he's attributing them directly to God, isn't he? All your waves and breakers swept over me. You see? He said, Lord, you are causing me to go through the mill. But verse 7, when my life was ebbing away, then I remembered you. And you see, the need of grace turns to the discovery of God's amazing grace in verses 4 and 7. The reason that grace is amazing is, of course, 
because it's so completely undeserved. That's what grace means, isn't it? It's a gift from God, undeserved. God doesn't give us what we do deserve, which is his judgments, and instead he gives us what we don't deserve, the gift of life and through Christ's eternal life. And what possible reason could Jonah have for believing that God might show him mercy? Well, the clue, I think, is in verse 4. Jonah knew that despite everything, God might still have mercy. Verse 4, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. Now, why the temple? Why might Jonah appeal to the temple here in his distress as he thinks, will God rescue me? Well, you see, the temple isn't just the place where God dwells amongst his people, which it is, of course, but it's the place, Jonah knew, where God makes provision for sin. The temple, in other words, is is a demonstration of the character of God. And the temple allows sinners to draw near by providing a sacrifice for sin. So as Jonah's thinking of the temple, he's thinking of the person of God, and he's saying the temple tells me that God is the kind of God who forgives. The very fact the temple is there shows me that. The temple existed in one sense, not because God needed it, but because we needed it to be restored to him when we sin. And the temple was the place where sinners could make a sacrifice for sin. The God of the Bible was allowing sinners to draw near, just there. And I think Jonah, as he, as he, it, despite his sin, as he's sinking in the water, he knew that God was a God who might just be gracious to him. He had confidence that God was a gracious God. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you should have that same confidence too. In fact, you should have, dare I say it, a greater confidence than Jonah knew that God is willing to forgive even the greatest of your sins. Can I ask you this morning, um, are you in any doubt that God is a forgiving God? See, Jesus is our reason to say it's never too late. He's our reason, isn't he? Jonah's reason as he sunk towards the bottom is to think of the temple. Our reason is that as our lives sink under sin is to look to the cross of Christ saying that is the evidence I need, that I can go to God with my sin and discover him to be gracious in my hour of need. Jesus is your reason why God hasn't given up on you. Jesus is your reason why God is willing to forgive your sins afresh. Maybe this weekend is a time for you to draw a line in the sand. Maybe there are issues, maybe there's things that have been unresolved between you and God and you say this is the day when I need to come to him again and discover him to be a gracious God to me. Someone has said, each of us, no matter how dark the circumstances of life, may look to the cross of Christ as the proof of God's unrelenting love. Even the most stubborn and sinful of sinners can find him to be gracious. Jonah says, wow, the engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pits. 
O Lord my God. So is there anything stopping you or me from experiencing the grace of God afresh today? Is your situation and circumstance any worse than Jonah's? It can't be, can it? If Jonah could rediscover that, you can too. I guess the only danger that we have is that we're a danger to ourselves in that we, we're still not ready to go to God with our sin because we still think there's a way that we can find a way out for ourselves. We think we might just find, I don't know, new life in love or new life in uh, career prospects or new life in fame or whatever it might be. But there is, of course, nothing that can save us from death. Only God is able to do that. No wonder Jonah says, verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. The only thing that's stopping us from discovering God's grace afresh today is a determination on our part to prefer some other hope of salvation. Preferring to sort out our lives ourselves. Now, having acknowledged God's grace to him, Jonah renewed his commitment to God. And for saving grace, experience afresh becomes transforming grace. Having discovered how amazing God's love is and how unrelenting God's love is, it's as if there's the new fuel in the engine that, leads, that turns Jonah's life around. And Jonah is a new man, isn't he? Verse 9, with a song of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. Let me tell you about another ship caught in a storm. The year is 1735. And the ship is making its way across to the New World from England. And on board was a young Anglican minister. His name was John Wesley. He'd been invited to serve as a minister in the British colonies. And a storm was brewing. Wesley was also the chaplain on board the ship. And of course his job is to comfort and reassure the passengers and to point them to Christ in in the distress of the storm. But Wesley's scared. He's scared by the storm. He's fearing for his life. He's not doing a brilliant job of being a ship's chaplain. But as he's fearing for his life, he's struck by a group who are also on the ship who are German Moravian Christians. They're evangelicals at a time when Wesley was not. And they were on the ship because they were, they were going over to the New World to become missionaries to the American Indians. And that's where they were heading. And whilst he's becoming anxious, he can see that they are not afraid of the storm. In fact, through the storm, they are singing hymns, calmly and confidently. Well, the ship makes its way through the storm, and Wesley is troubled by what he's seen within his own heart, that lack of assurance, that lack of confidence. And he's troubled by what he's seen in their hearts. And when the trip ends, he asks the Moravian leader, well, about this seemingly peace that transcended the circumstances. And the Moravian leader responded with a question. He asked Wesley, do you have faith in Christ? Wesley said he did. But he later reflected, I fear they were vain words. Wesley had religion, 
but he didn't know saving grace. And the storm had revealed it, really. That lack of faith that set him on a journey that led him three years later, 1738, to a Bible study in London. And the group that gathered there were reading Luther's preface to the Romans, the introduction to his commentary on the book of Romans. And it was there that that his life was changed forever. He wrote of how that night, hearing something of the true gospel of grace through Luther's writings, that he felt his heart strangely warmed. He'd been converted. And the gospel of God's free grace found a place in his heart. But it was the storm, those three years earlier, that for Wesley, that was that storm that was necessary to drive him to his knees and to find a saviour in Jesus. And Wesley never looked back. He was a changed man from 1738 onwards, forever. For the next 53 years, he preached the gospel everywhere. In an age where to get anywhere you had to travel on horseback, he racked up 250,000 miles on a horse. A quarter of a million miles on a horse. In all weathers, not a carriage, just a horse. That's around the world ten times on a horse. And he preached 40,000 sermons. Talk about a man whose life had been turned upside down. When the joy of salvation lives within our hearts, it's putting the right fuel in the engine and it changes everything. It turns us from inward-looking people to outward-looking people. It turned Jonah from a man who cared nothing for those who didn't know Jesus to someone who would begin to care. Just a bit, and we'll see how the story continues. Can I tell you a secret? And uh, you can ask Dan what he thinks of this later. The measure of my success as a church minister... The measure of my success is measured by your desire to tell others of Jesus. Because if you don't want to do that, I have been putting wrong fuel in the engine. My my role and place as a minister of the gospel is to show you the greatness of Jesus. And if I can show you the greatness of Jesus so that it captures your hearts, God will do the rest. And that grace will turn you around and change your priorities and give you new eyes to see the world as Jesus saw the world. And your concern will be others. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, couldn't attend a conference because of ill health towards the end of his his time. And he instead sent a telegram (coughs) And the telegram that was basically to be read out before the gathering of the Salvation Army uh, leaders in London simply read one word. Others. That was his passion. Others. They need to know about Jesus. And that's the burning desire of my heart. It was what William Booth testified to. It's what John Wesley testified to. It's what we're beginning to discover in the work and life of Jonah. We just see things differently. 
when we see a lot of Jesus. Letting grace live in our hearts is the key to renewal in the church. It's been the key to every revival, every renewal, and every individual Christian's desire to be on mission for Jesus. And of course, our relationship with Jesus therefore means it needs constant attention. It's a living thing, isn't it? It's like, a, it's like looking after your children or maintaining a good relationship with your parents or a spouse. Any relationship is a living thing and you have to feed it. And speaking on these verses from Jonah, Dick Lucas writes, every day represents a fresh challenge. When we'll be tempted to forget everything we have learned over the years and traded in. Every day we have to make a deliberate decision to remember Christ. And Jonah had been on some journey, hadn't he? To learn it. But with that lesson learned, verse 10, Jonah says, sorry, we read, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Just as the sailors experienced their salvation, so now does Jonah. Someone has said both faced a similar crisis, peril from the sea. Both cried to Yahweh, acknowledging his sovereignty. Both were physically saved. Both offered worship. Ironically, Jonah is brought to the point the Gentile seamen have already reached in chapter 1. So, can I ask, is there a song of thanksgiving in your heart? And if as God's people we're called to take the good news of Christ to our towns, we'll need that song of thanksgiving. So is the gospel good news? Is it, is it living as good news in your life? Because we always want to share good news, don't we? I mean, someone's going to have bragging rights tomorrow morning. It's going to either be the English or the Welsh. Someone's going to be... And boy, whoever wins, you're not going to hear the end of it. Because <laughs> that's what we do. We share good news. Have you bought a pair of nice shoes at a bargain price? What do you do? You want to tell everybody, don't you? Ben and Jerry's ice cream, two for one, etc. What do you do? You tell everybody. Good news is contagious. And like David, we would do well to pray Psalm 51, Restore to me, Lord, the joy of my salvation. Restore it to me, Lord. Make it live, make it real, make it good news for me. So there's a song of thanksgiving in my heart, so I will go on. Well, how, if you haven't got that song, how do you get one? What if you are a Christian and you say, yeah, I do love Jesus, I do believe this is true, but sometimes life and circumstances and situations just take over and are more real, are bigger in my heart and my mind than Jesus. Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones arguably the greatest preacher of his day, said he, he said, I do not care how long you have been a Christian, you are nothing but a sinner saved by the grace of God. And therefore we need to find ways of remembering that and celebrating that we are sinners saved by the grace of God. So maybe it's, it's just asking ourselves questions like this. I mean, not literally, but finding ways of thinking about these questions when we wake in the morning or when we're at the end of church and having coffee, or when we're thinking about how much am I going to give of what God has given back to me to him. We might just say, what do I deserve from God? What, what is my lot before him? Does God owe me anything? The answer to which is, no, what I deserve, of course, is hell. Where would I be 
without him. Just what has God saved me from? Do I think about that at all? Um, so, that, so that I'm reminded of just the enormity of what God has done for me. What did it take to save me? God didn't send a whale to save me. God sent his son. And his son to suffer and to die for me. The enormity of what God did to save me. And then why have I been given this new life to live? What is it that God wants from me now? What is my life for? And I guess those are just minds that focus us when we're tempted to just drift off and for our energies to be taken up with all of the other sometimes important things of life. I'm not saying we shouldn't think hard about our work and our family and our money, all these things. But to have Jesus and the joy of salvation at the heart of everything. John Stott said, The cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled. The cross is like a fire. And we've got to get close to it to feel its warmth. So it says we have to get near enough to it for its sparks to fall on us. You've got to get close to the cross to be warmed in your heart by your salvation. So yes, uh, training has its part. And nice publicity for an evangelistic event is a good idea. But none of those things will overcome indifference in our hearts or apathy towards the loss. They're good, but they're not enough. No, it's only when the joy of your salvation is living that you're equipped for the task. Spurgeon calls the belly of the fish, he called the belly of the fish Jonah's strange college. Because it was where Jonah went to relearn grace. You can picture the certificate on your wall in Jonah's office, can't you? Master of Digestion Studies. Fish College. 1st to the 3rd of June. You could call it the Strange College. You could also call it the College of His Mistakes. Oh yeah, I went to the College of My Mistakes. That's where I learned grace, you know. And I, and I passed with a first, and I've been living and delighting in grace ever since. Now, God knew the weakness of Jonah's heart, and he knew Jonah would run, but he also knew that he could teach Jonah a lesson even though he was running from him. He could teach him grace again. So God let him run, didn't he? God let him run to teach him grace. And from the grave, from the belly of the fish, through his own death and resurrection experience, Jonah emerges a new man ready to serve. I guess as we finish for today, the key lesson from Jonah's 1 and 2 is you can't give what you haven't got. So you can't give out grace to others if grace isn't what's going on here. You can't give what you haven't got. Jonah 1 and 2 are all about Jonah discovering that for himself. And then when we come back tomorrow morning, we'll see how Jonah starts to give from what God has given him. We'll still see he's a mass of contradictions in chapter 4 and that he's got a long way to go, but he's starting to give from what God has given him. You can't give what you haven't got. And a ministry of the gospel is an outworking of the ministry of the gospel in your heart. And Jonah needs that afresh and you and I need that afresh. And by God's grace, may that grow over this weekend. Let's pray.
But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. Father, thank you for your patience with us. Father, thank you that you do not treat us as our sins deserve and when so often we're living life for the wrong reasons and with the wrong fuel and we wonder why we're not really going anywhere with you. You just teach us grace all over again and start to put things right. Lord, would you renew in us the joy of our salvation so that we as your people might be able to take that salvation to the world. Amen. Amen.